I want to begin this morning with what I believe to be a very important biblical reminder. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. The passage begins, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Who is writing this? The Apostle Peter. Who does he say and what does he say is hard to understand? The inspired writings of Paul. I mean, that's one of the things that sticks out to me is that he recognizes that what Paul wrote, even though he did it according to the wisdom given him, which means it was inspired, is still hard to understand. And secondly, in stating that people twist what Paul wrote to their own destruction, Peter acknowledges that Paul's writing is Scripture among other scriptures. Now I stress that second point because I have heard people try to say, well that was just the Apostle Paul, but Jesus never said that. Have you ever heard people say that with regard to some issues? Yeah. In fact, first couple chapters of Romans I've had people say, well that's just Paul. Jesus doesn't. No. Peter said, well Paul's writing a scripture. Chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, which has been our focus ever since I returned from my trip in January, the end of January. Chapters 9 to 11 of Romans are hard to understand. And a few of you have asked questions during the week following a message, and I love that. Jack Cottrell, who taught at Cincinnati Bible Seminary for years, lost his, his battle with cancer back in September. He said in his commentary that chapters 9 to 11, that section is one of the most difficult sections of the Bible. So if you're struggling with what I have been teaching and preaching since the end of January, you're not alone. Scholar N.T. Wright has a chapter titled Christ, the Law, and the People of God, the Problem of Romans 9 to 11. And then he himself says the singular problem in the chapter title is deceptive. Romans 9 to 11 is full of, as full of problems as a hedgehog is of pickle, prickles. Now, I'm not too much on hedgehogs and prickles. But I have a feeling that they must get a lot when they're out roaming through the, the wilds. He goes on to say, many have given it up as a bad job, leaving Romans as a book with eight chapters of gospel and four chapters of application with these three chapters of a puzzle in the middle. Now part of the problem is what's 
been referred to as, and I don't expect you to remember this, but if you hear it sometime, you'll say, oh, I know what that means. But it's called the hermeneutical challenge. And what it is, is the fact that when you are reading something, and it doesn't have to be just the Bible, when you're reading something and trying to understand it, there are a lot of times that the meaning, to understand the meaning of the parts, we need to have an understanding of the meaning of the whole, the big picture. But there are also times, and also the reverse is true, that to understand the meaning of the whole, the big picture, we have to understand the meaning of the parts. And to understand the content of Romans chapter 11, it's important for us to understand the context. And the context of this section of Romans, chapters 9 to 11, is not predestination. God choosing ahead of time who will and won't be saved. The context is the faithfulness of God. In fact, there is a reformed Calvinistic scholar by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones who believes, he believed, he's dead now, he believed in predestination. But he himself said, and he specifically rejected any focus on predestination for these three chapters, saying that the subject matter is altogether bigger than predestination. And he goes on to say, anyone to exalt predestination as the main theme in this section is almost to be guilty of blasphemy. We must understand passages in context. But, listen to me, while choosing to focus on the theme of the faithfulness of God, it has to be admitted that Israel does figure heavily in this discussion. In fact, God's dealings with Israel is what gave rise to the questions of his faithfulness. Has God been faithful to his chosen people? Has he kept his promises to them? Chapter 9, verse 6. Has he been fair to them? One commentator said that what is at stake ultimately in these chapters is not the fate of Israel, but ultimately it's God's own trustworthiness that is at stake. Now we pointed out that two things raised the issue. And one was the Jews' rejection of the gospel. And the other, God's subsequent rejection of Israel. It's a simple historical fact. Most of the nation of Israel did not accept Jesus as the expected Messiah. They rejected the gospel of grace. Jesse and I are watching the chosen I think last night we watched three back-to-back. Love it. Timeline. But we really don't know timeline on a lot of the stories. And some of the stories, Jesus probably taught more than once. Yeah. I've used the same outline for a sermon that I used before because it just seemed to be a good one that connected and I was in a different setting with different people. But it's really good because it shows even the struggles that Peter and 
James and John had as they were trying to sort through all that was taking place. But it was also a fact that God did in fact reject His people. That's what Paul said back in chapter 9 verse 3. But rejected them, speaking of the ethnic national Israel as a whole. You see, he rejected them with regard and respect to salvation. It says they were cut off. And that fact in particular raised the question of God's faithfulness. After all, God Himself had chosen the Jews. He had showered them with covenant promises, covenant blessings. Again, someone has referred to to this as the greatest enigma in history. Not too long ago, I met a friend of a friend who, when he found out I was a minister and he also found out that we were doing the book of Romans, he asked me my opinion about something in this very chapter we're looking at today. The mystery of the olive tree. Isn't Israel the olive tree? Was his question. So, here's my image for today. This is an olive tree that is believed to be, listen, about 2,000 years old. So I searched that. I found an article titled, Nine Amazing Attributes of Olive Trees That Will Humble and Amaze You. The first is longevity. There are trees in the Mediterranean region that are scientifically verified to be as old as 2,000 years. And in terms of prolific, one tree in Croatia that's believed to be about 1,600 years old is still producing abundant fruit today. Indestructible. The root system of the olive tree is so robust that it's capable of regenerating itself even when the above ground structure of the tree is totally destroyed by frost, fire, disease, or drought. They are drought friendly, unparchable, generous. A large olive tree like this produces about 400 pounds of olives a year. Now for those of you that like olives like we do at our house, and you know how much, how expensive a little jar is? 400 pounds a year. Again, ancient. It's been cultivated for almost 6,000 years. And sacred. Considered sacred. The olive branch was often a symbol of abundance, glory, and peace. And healthy. In fact, olives are incredibly healthy as a fruit containing antioxidants, uh, healthy fats, fibers. So with the image of the olive tree in mind, let's go into our text for today. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. That's that phrase that He's been repeating. Megan Anatol, no, no. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God's not rejected his people whom before knew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? 
Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And alone, I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Skipping down to verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. It's important for me to set the table before we dig in. General agreement. General agreement among almost everything I read. The coming of Christ ushered in a new covenantal era. In fact, the word testament is the same as covenant in both Hebrew and Greek. And we have the Old Testament slash covenant and the New Testament slash covenant. And to grasp what Paul is saying, we need to remember that only the primal, only the Old Covenant was made with Israel as a nation. And the essence of that covenant, again, was service, not salvation. Further, and this is very important, all of God's covenant obligations to national Israel were fulfilled when Christ came into the world the first time. Under the new covenant, God's dealing with humanity, including the Jews, as, indi as individuals, not as nations. And God is now gathering together a remnant, a new Israel, the true spiritual Israel from among the Gentiles and Jews. Those who believe the gospel and accept Jesus as their Messiah are added to that remnant. So in answer to the question that begins the chapter, an emphatic, I ask then, has God rejected His people? The answer to this question has already been made obvious back in chapters 9 to 10. In the first place, God didn't reject them. They rejected Him. Chapter 10, verse 21, we read, All day long I have held out my hands to invite them to Myself. But Paul says, he already affirmed, they didn't submit. You see, 
even if there is a sense in which God has rejected ethnic Israel, He's not rejected them all. Some Jews are still among the objects of His mercy whom He prepared in advance for glory. Chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. These are the remnant of whom Isaiah spoke. Oh, I didn't finish reading, did you? Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even, and even they, if they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary into nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You see... God's true Israel is the remnant. And what did he say for those Jews who come to believe? They have to be grafted back into the trunk. The trunk. The subject of this first whole paragraph is the remnant. And Paul's point is that God can never be accused of rejecting His people because there's always been a remnant from among the Jews who have accepted His way of grace and thus in personal fellowship with Him. Those who have been circumcised in the heart. And yet Paul's not using a spiritual understanding of Israel. I mean, did you notice the qualifier that he begins with? He begins by saying, I myself am an Israelite. But neither is Paul's reference to physical Israel as a whole. As if such a question, has God rejected the nation of Israel as, as such, could even be answered, yes or no. Rather, Paul is thinking of ethnic Jews, but thinking of them as individuals, not as a nation. And God hasn't rejected all of them, nor should God reject them in reference to their service, because every purpose for which Israel had been chosen was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. That's what he said back in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. And because this is true, to be sure, there is no longer any rationale for Israel's continuing existence as a nation, as some try to maintain in terms of the last day prophecies. Nor as Jews distinct from Gentiles. The existence of God's special, unique, physical nation has come to an end. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verses 27 to 29? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You see, the trunk still is important. Heirs according to promise. Now we need to speak in terms of fulfillment. 
Not in terms of being rejected. You see, in full accordance with God's plan, Israel as a nation has been... Now let me use a military phrase. They've been honorably discharged from service. They did what they were called to do. And so the question becomes, if only a remnant of Israel is saved, what's happened to the rest? What does Paul mean when he says the rest were hardened? Are they totally abandoned? Forgotten by God? See, at this point, I think it will help us to understand hardening as punishment, not as the cause of their rejection. Again, I stress the importance of context. And the context does require us to identify God Himself as the main agent in the hardening of the Jews. It says God hardened them, but how did He do so? That's not explained. Now, one possibility is that He hardened them by allowing Satan a free hand to blind their eyes. You see this back in 1 Kings chapter 22. You see it again in the book of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? You see it again in 2 Corinthians 4, where God proves or punishes by leaving Satan to do his act. It's also possible, secondly, that God hardened the Jews simply by diminishing or withdrawing his own positive influences on them, as he did with the Gentiles when Paul himself says three times in chapter 1 that God gave them over to the destructiveness of their own sinful desires. In either case, there's general agreement that the Jews had already hardened themselves into a state of unbelief. They weren't going to accept Jesus. He wasn't coming in. Uh, one of the lines that really caught me in The Chosen was when one of the people said to another one, we found the Messiah. And the person he said it to has said, well, is he big and strong? Well, no. Well, is he wealthy? Well, no. Because, you see, they were focused on somebody who would come in as a military conqueror and throw Rome out. So the divine hardening is not the cause of their rejection of the gospel but something that they had earned. And the result of the hardening is Paul's subject in verses 8 to 10 of our text today. It certainly involves an insensitivity towards God's Word. The blinding of one's spiritual eyes. The deafening of the spiritual ears toward God's truth. It seems like in the act of hardening the faculty of being touched by what is good or divine is taken away from the heart and the faculty of discerning between the true and the false, the good and the bad, is somehow taken away from the understanding. I would imagine that each one of you sitting here has heard about someone that you know that heard a story about the gospel who said, oh, I can't believe that. In The Chosen, they depict Matthew, the tax collector who became one of the twelve, as standing on the shore kind of hiding as he watches the miraculous catch of fish. 
And he keeps, I, I can't believe it. No, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the Peter and the others fishing, Simon. No, it was this guy on the shore that said, put your nets on the other side. Yeah, the Roman said, yeah, right, as if I'm to believe that. That, that hardening. Which brings us to the olive tree. A metaphor of judgment and hope. In the final paragraph of our text, Paul stays with the metaphor of the olive tree. But he expands it. He uses it to show how the church is related to Old Testament Israel. And how Jews and Gentiles are related to the church. And the main point of verses 17 to 22 is a double warning to Gentile Christians. They're warned not to have an attitude of self-righteous superiority toward unbelieving Jews. And secondly, they're warned not to have uh, the belief, not to feel that they are immune from falling away themselves as the Jews did. And the main point of verses 23 and 24, on the other hand, is an explanation of how the fallen and hardened Jews can in fact be saved. Again, I believe Paul used the olive tree as a basis for making these points because in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 11, Hosea 14, God does compare His people with the olive tree. And as I said, at that time in history, that was something very familiar to them. The most widely cultivated tree in that area. But also... The grafting of branches. That is not something new to science. When I was a kid, we went to Florida on a vacation and we went to one of the companies that cans fruit. And in the front yard of that business, (coughs) I'll never forget it, there was a tree that had branches that had oranges on them another branch that had grapefruit, and another branch that had some other kind of citrus. Maybe it was lemons. Now, they were all citrus fruits, but they were all growing from the root of one tree where they had been grafted in. So the grafting of the branches is not only a central element of the metaphor, but that's what introduces the element of hope. The olive tree represents the people of God in a general sense. The trunk, the roots, are the patriarchs. Okay? The branches, which, some serious pruning... The branches that were cut off were the Jews who would not accept Jesus as the Messiah. But some of the branches remained. I love, by the way, the depiction of Nicodemus in The Chosen. Seeking. Searching. And the branches of the tree, which are the focal point of the metaphor, are the saved individuals of the New Covenant, the New Testament era. 
As such, they are the new Israel. The olive tree as a whole represents the two Israels to which chapter 9 verse 6 said, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. The root, the branch, the trunk is ethnic Israel. But the branches are the New Testament spiritual Israel, which includes believing Jews and Gentiles that have been grafted in as wild shoots. Paul's tree is not the same as the Old Testament prototype tree. Because the latter, Paul's tree, was transformed at Pentecost. Transformed into something entirely new. What was once an entire tree is now just a trunk of a new tree. And the church is as different from Israel as a tree's branches are different from its trunk. Sometimes a parallel question gets raised. Preacher or pastor, is the kingdom of God the church? The church is part of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is greater. Because if the kingdom of God goes back into the Old Testament prior to the church and includes those believing circumcised in the heart remnant Jews. See, when Christ came and the tree was changed, all Jews who refused to accept Him as their Savior were removed from the tree. And we have every reason to assume that this might have even included some Jews who were previously in a safe state because of their faith in God as He was known through the Old Testament, but who rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah. And that's why when I hear people say, well, kind of like the movie, all dogs go to heaven, don't all roads lead to heaven? No. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He uses a definitive article with each of those three. And then He says, no man comes unto the Father except by Me. Now, are unbelieving family members are family members who are not worshiping God on a regular basis who don't darken the doors of a church ever scripturally speaking are lost and won't be with us for eternity See, we're dependent upon the root, the trunk of the tree for our salvation and assurance. That's why I never did like that phrase. My dad used it when I was young. We're New Testament Christians. He didn't even carry the Old Testament. He had a little pocket New Testament, leather bound. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And the other reason is, is that they're being grafted into the tree is due to their faith in what Christ has done. Not to some boastworthy achievement accomplished by their own hands. 
Once again, here's another passage that shows if we ever reach a point where we no longer believe in Jesus, we too will be broken off just as the unbelieving Jews. Verses 20 and 21. And the element of hope, continuing his theme from 11 to 16, is that the lopped off Jews are not irrevocably lost, but can still be saved, even though they are now in an unbelieving and hardening state. And he's not just declaring that they can be saved, but showing how they can be saved. Namely, by being grafted again into their own transformed olive tree, which is the church. Again, contrary to what many proclaim, this passage has nothing to do with a supposed future restoration of the Jewish nation or a time when the natural descendants of Abraham will be once again God's chosen people. It is a possibility that's open to the Jews anytime, anywhere. But the stated requirement is simply that they not persist in their unbelief. Verse 23. And there is hope. Hope for Jews and Gentiles alike. And that is how all Israel can be saved. Verse 26. So in terms of our challenge... We need to know that Paul's emphasis on faith or the lack of it is the key to whether or not one's a part of the olive tree. And that's consistent with the main theme of Romans throughout. That sinners are saved by grace through faith and not by works of the law. 3.28 And consistent with his emphasis on faith throughout chapter 10. And bringing the challenge home to you and I We need to make sure that we, as Gentile branches grafted into the tree, that we're able to hear the double warning. Not to be self-righteous or overconfident. Listen again, in closing, to Paul's warning. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? If it does, I'm lost. I'm not perfect. I haven't been perfect today. I I probably Pat should have come back and sat by you and let them put their hands on me. Pray for me. Because all of my life, I have struggled with periods of depression. And I'm going through one of them again. I said to our daughter this morning, 
be there to support your mom. Because I know right now I'm not much support. We all have those periods, don't we? Where we doubt, we question. I told my wife I was coming early this morning, and I did. I was going to close the door, but the wax mill I put on was too strong, too strong to keep the door closed. But I told her. And this might be hard for you to hear. But I told her, I don't feel like going to church this morning. And I've got to get myself ready. I've got to get myself prepared. So that it won't be me, but it'll be somehow God speaking through me and through His Word. We're not going to be perfect. But as long as we are focusing and aiming ourselves down that narrow path, He'll do everything He can to keep helping bump us back onto it when we start to slide off. But we can't be obstinate. We can't harden our hearts. We have to be open to hearing that still small, quiet voice. Let's pray.